Hi, everyone. Welcome to the DeSuckify Work Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Josh Weiss, art director, creative director, and curious, compassionate soul. Josh and I worked together a while back at Saatchi and Saatchi in LA. In addition to his clever, creative mind, I was always impressed with his desire to learn, grow, and shine light on any blind spots he might have. Josh shines a lot of light in this 90-plus minute conversation. During the show, we talk about ad agency culture and how it needs to adapt to meet the needs of current workers who have zero patience for authoritarian leadership. We talk about mental health in the workplace and why it needs to be acknowledged, understood, and supported with kindness and empathy. And we talk about the importance of getting junior employees more involved in the work at a high level so they can start learning from day one. Not a bad idea since agencies offer little to no training. Did we mention that those younger employees also have a lot to teach us grizzled vets? If we only stopped for a minute to really listen. Speaking of listening, I hope you listen to all that Josh has to say during our episode. You'll be glad you did. I know I am. Okay, welcome to the DeSuckify Work Podcast. Josh Weiss, welcome. Hello. How you doing? Doing all right. Uh, just kind of finished up working for two weeks at different places and now kind of on the hunt again. Uh, okay. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully that hunt can, can go pretty quickly, you know, um, yeah. just before we, we dive into any of that kind of thinking, I, I wanted to give you just a chance to tell people, you know, who you are, what you're all about in terms of the work you do and, and maybe a little bit about how you ended up getting to do the work you're currently doing. Yeah. Um, so my background was not in advertising. I didn't go to school for it initially. I went for journalism and sociology. Mm -hmm. And then a few years after working as a professional photojournalist, I went back to school for advertising. But I'd like to think that that background in journalism and sociology actually influences the work I do, mm. uh, especially in you know this more social world that's more connected. Um, knowing how groups of people think and are going to share things and how information permeates that's going to be helpful from the mm -hmm. sociology end but then also from you know the news end like when i worked at cnn.com sitting almost right next to the person who would like decide what headlines made the front page mm. uh and what kind of things that you make that are going to resonate and you know get that earned media um i think those both shape the type of work i do because it's kind of like if you're making something that people that you're talking to don't care about. What's the point? Because you've already lost. Mm. You kind of, like it has to resonate with them in some degree if you ever want them to even remember it. So yeah. um, I'm always kind of thinking like, what's it going to take to get someone to actually pay attention to this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, I think in advertising, we can sometimes fall in love with our own thinking because it's something we love. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily putting it through that lens of what's going to get attention. And I know, like you said, with, you know, the, the continuing advance of, of social and, and things that really fight to get attention or fight to get that earned media, it's, uh, you can't just do something that's great. You have to do something that's great and relevant. Um, mm -hmm. and that's a big difference. Did you also, uh, I know you were, the president of your debate society back in college yeah. uh, and has that had any impact on the way you think about the work you do um not the work that 
correctly, and maybe things within the agency and how I go about arguing things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been told it can be intimidating to argue with me because I'm pretty fast on my feet with shaping arguments. That, mm-hmm. um, but I think at the same time, it makes some people, because they're not used to getting pushback over things, um, mm-hmm. it might make me seem like I'm not like a team player when the reality is it's just like I want everything to be bulletproof. Mm-hmm. And so like, uh, for me, it's just kind of like I have to kind of moderate that aspect because uh, not everyone is, you know, everyone says they want to be challenged and ideas can come from anywhere. The reality, once you're actually working for a lot of those people, is that they just like their ideas and don't really want to be challenged. So. I think that's probably true to, for a lot of folks. And it makes me wonder if, you know, one of the things I talk about a lot is the lack of training in 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 work in general i think in general things move so fast there's just not a lot of time for people to get trained um but but when you started talking about debate it just made me wonder like something as simple as that of how to how to craft your arguments um in a in a, in a work culture where like you said the, the the talking point is we want ideas to come from everywhere and we want the best ideas to rise to the top and we want to be able to argue that and 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 fight for those ideas but with reason and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, it makes me wonder, like, could that be part of the training for people? It's not just simply like how to be a good copywriter, how to be a good art director, how to be a good account person, or even how to be a good manager. But fundamentally, you know, do we lack the skills of argument in, in, yeah. in the advertising world? I mean, there, there's a lot of parts of that to, to you know, decompress from the, um, the big one though, is that like, I forget the name of it, but it's like the reason there are so many bad managers is because people get promoted to their level of incompetence. So basically, like you're really good at your previous job, and then mm-hmm. you get promoted, and you're terrible at the new one. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, to your point, a lot of there there is no management training for the most part. So you're mm-hmm. kind of being just, and some people are good at it, some people aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think there should. I I don't think you should be forced into management if you don't think you're going to be a good manager or you want yeah. to learn do it because mm-hmm. um, i think there's plenty of space in the industry for people who just want to work on the creative and just do the best creative they can and not mm-hmm. worry about that um you know i've i've been lucky to have a lot of leadership positions in my life at this point and i think i'm i think i'm pretty good at it you talk to the people that have worked under me i think they would they vouch for that mm-hmm. um, but you know it it is what it is um just you just have to hope you're under one of the people who gets it yeah, I think that's the the, the truth and, and, and a little bit of a sad truth, I think, because I think we could do something about it, you know, both in terms of what you said, in terms of really tracking people appropriately, right? In terms of going, this person has a ton of skill as a creative, um, but after talking with them and sort of mutually evaluating what they're interested in and what they really feel they're most strong at, they're probably not going to be the best manager or leader. And that's okay, but how do we how do mm-hmm. we give them opportunity to grow as an art director or writer, or whatever, in a way that they continue to can continue to make a little more money and can continue to take on bigger and better opportunities? Yeah. I think I think there's room for that, and then I do think there's obviously room for for training for folks who may have some of the skills and interest in managing. Um, but I, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this. I experienced this. You show up one day and you're you're quote unquote a leader, and you're like. I'm just going to kind of do what I sort of observed other people that I think I liked doing, but that might not be good. 
it just might be what we were comfortable with. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah, unfortunate. I, I think there's actually a lot of interconnectivity between different issues in the industry that could all, weirdly enough, solve themselves if you kind of paired them off. Like, mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things in the industry right now is the gatekeeping that comes with ad schools. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you decrease the cost of ad schools so that anyone from any financial background can get in, get properly trained? Because mm -hmm. kind of the answer right now is, oh, well, let's make ad schools worse by making them shorter and not preparing people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's the answer long term, but yeah. also this problem of we have these people who aren't good at managing. Um, so it's like, well, what if, what if, if we can't create like a good for-profit ad school anymore? What if the industry as a whole decided they were going to make a non-profit ad school, mm. have people who are trying to move from that senior creative level to ACD or ACD to CD, have them be teachers so that they can learn how to manage like truly mm. creatives, help them get better and work through those issues um mm -hmm. you know it's going to be financed by the agencies because they're paying the time of that person to do that those hours mm -hmm. that kind of solves two issues at once and then i've also thrown in this other issue with like the uh you know award shows and how much they charge for things like why don't we put a tax on the award mm -hmm. show entries to help fund some of this nonprofit ad school and mm. kind of all these things could maybe help resolve themselves if everyone's kind of like understanding what the issues are and how they're kind of interrelated. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I, you know, the thing I hear there is one, I hear great ideas. And then I think who is, who needs to hear them? Right. <laughs> and I, and I think, you know, I don't know who's going to listen to this episode, but whoever does listen, I hope you've heard that because I think there's, you know, the idea that, that you could have some kind of a nonprofit sort of cooperative based, ad school that that not only teaches people how to to do the creative work but also how to learn how to manage and lead is really cool and then i think you know leaning into the award show expense and sort of the the extravagance that is there and and you're never going to get rid of that you know that's part of the culture in the world of advertising and i even though i'm not a quote unquote big award guy i get it i get the need for recognition but if you could tap into that as a source of funding that's really clever and i think you know it, it almost feels like you know it, it requires a lot of people to to hear this but at, at, at high levels and and maybe there is some kind of uh organization or movement or something that could be started to to build this you know and um mm -hmm. i don't know what the answer is there yet i don't know if we need to solve yeah. it today but but i love i love that kind of thinking and i think in general, Josh, I think you're always bringing up really interesting kinds of thinking like that. I see some of the posts you share on LinkedIn, and obviously I've known you for a while. Um, what is it about that kind of thinking that attracts you? I mean, some people kind of just put their heads down and do the work, right? What what motivates you to think about these bigger picture issues? I, I like solving systematic problems. Um, mm -hmm. like things down figuring out what the different moving parts are and how it's working and then being like okay how can we actually step in to fix this to make a difference mm -hmm. um, i i don't know if there's a reason i'm drawn to it so much as it's just kind of the way i'm wired and mm -hmm. that's like a cop-out it's just kind of where my brain goes yeah um, you know like if i'm laying like weird this is this is just weird and i don't expect anyone else is like this but if i'm just like laying on the couch like zoning out my mm -hmm. brain might launch to like societal structure and like class systems and stuff and like mm -hmm. 
not normal things. And I <laughs> understand that. Um, yeah. But, you know, for me, it's like when I'm, I do the same thing when I'm like looking at a brief and it's just like, what what is the actual problem we're trying to solve versus just mm-hmm. trying to solve a symptom? And it's like, you know, um, <laughs> one of the things I'm sure you heard a lot is like, oh, people have like super short attention spans. You have to put everything in the first three seconds. So it's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you're trying to make a crappy product that doesn't stand out, then yes, you only have three seconds. But mm-hmm. you go remember the the age-old uh, adage from Gossage that mm-hmm. people don't read ads; they read things they're interested in. Have yeah. more than three seconds, so it's like exactly. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of the times we're looking for quick and easy solutions mm-hmm. versus the right solution. Mm-hmm. And you know, even for for things like sideshow, like just committing to doing something that might take more time to do it right, but you're going to do it right. And it's going to have, it's going to be easier in the long run because you've set yourself up for a better place. Mm-hmm. The example of that was the first year we did sideshow when we were trying to get all these judges, we, we put an emphasis on, you know, being diverse, both uh, ethnically and male, female. And we had thought we had done a really good job with that. And then someone pointed out that all of our black judges, none of them were creative. And that hit me really hard because it was just like in this like rush to just to get all the judges, we were filling in holes and not paying attention to that detail. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, how do I solve that problem for year two? And so what I ended up doing was I kind of looked at the ethnic breakdown for the United States, literally like made a spreadsheet, like slots, and even kind of took some of the slots for white judges because it was going to be so many of them to give mm-hmm. them to other groups. And then again, committing for, uh, especially for those African-American judges, like making sure that they were from a creative background so that mm-hmm. that was an issue. And like, you know, I think I always ask really pointed questions, probably again, coming from the debate side. And I think that comes across as people thinking like, oh, he's fighting back with me or he's like, mm-hmm. you know, trying to be, I was like, I'm, I'm coming from a place of understanding, like, well, mm-hmm. I want to understand where your thinking is so that I can solve the problem appropriately. Mm-hmm. Because like, I'm sure you've done that where you're just like, we're putting forward a solution, but this doesn't actually solve anything. It just solves this like one thing from another problem that's already popped up. Which is like, what what good does that do? Because then you're not speaking to the, you know, I always say like the why of the consumer, like why do they want the things that they want? Mm -hmm. If you're not solving the cause of it and you're just solving a symptom, you're not actually solving anything. So Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I definitely felt that before. And I think, you know, on a broad, to, to, to paint with a broad brush, I do think our industry has, it, it gravitates towards the, the quick and easy solving the surface level symptom rather than wanting to dig deep. And that there's probably a number of reasons, which probably goes all the way into the, like the financial structure that we have um, that motivates short-term thinking more so than giving us the time to really think long-term. But, uh, but I also think that that mindset of problem solving and and before you even solve the problem identifying the real problem is another one that god we should we should try to train that a little more i think like you know you said like you're wired that way i'm kind of wired that way um but not everybody is but everybody could get better at that right and and so whether somebody's preparing a brief evaluating a brief working off of a brief um, or looking at the work that's trying to solve for that brief to have people who, 
who aren't simply going like, is this is this ad uh, on trend or is this you know a, a really uh, compelling th- first three seconds of this social post? You're going like, well, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? Yeah, and, and I think I think we need more of that. And I'm curious, do you have any in in your systematic thinking that you've done? Have you ever thought like, how could we get more of that kind of thinking in in the, in the ad world? Well, I, I think the reason that we go for the easy wins is because they're easy wins. So it's like, you know, so like say a new CCO comes in, the joke is the first thing they always try to do is paint the walls because it's the most obvious thing they can do to show that they put their mark on a place yeah. as opposed to turning around the portfolio, which is going to take more time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for a lot of people, it's like, well, what's going to be the easy win to show that we can, we can point our finger at something and say, we did that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's the right thing, we did it. Like, you know, what was the actual problem that Moldy Whopper was solving? And why do primarily the people who talk about it are ad people and not real people? Mm-hmm. You ask people what Burger King stuff they like, and they like the Whopper Whopper song. <laughs> um, which yeah. I, I, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, this is brilliant because it's have it your way. And they're literally having a guy sing off key like the normal person would sing. Like mm-hmm. that attracts me and makes sense in a way where I, I'm not going to be like a, elitist advertising person and i'm just like no i understand why this is resonating and i think it's smart like mm-hmm. from that logical part um you know i think a lot of people it's probably a little bit dated now but like even just reading freakonomics to, to understand mm-hmm. the methodology of trying to look further for what's causing the problem mm-hmm. um, the examples they give are obviously like the book came out i don't know like 10 20 years ago at this point so the examples they gave then which were dated are even more dated but mm-hmm. I think just to see how they approach the problem, be like, well, what's causing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and finding that underlying thing, like strategists should definitely be doing that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I worked with many great strategists. I think they were also significantly better than the other strategists I worked with because they were willing to do those deeper dives into like, why is this the way it is? Instead of just mm-hmm. something, this is the way it is. Therefore, we're solving that. And that's where the three second thing comes from because you think about why why is a, a person's attention span only three seconds versus their attention span is only three seconds right the yeah right there yeah and it makes you know when it, when i first heard the three second thing i i was very skeptical of it honestly because i certainly personally i knew when i liked something i would watch a seven minute video that was basically a long ad for like you know a motorcycle which i'm not even in the market for but it was just like really intriguing or something like that. And then podcasts, like, you know, they started taking off and I'm like, I'll listen to a one hour, two hour, even three hour podcast if it's interesting. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost like we set it up as a, as a excuse for not having to work harder, you Mm. know, and then, uh, and then it just becomes sort of gospel, right? It's like, attention spans are only three seconds. You got to do this, this, and this in the first three seconds, which, you know, I think it also comes to our, our desire to uh, have easy formulas for stuff. I think, you know, yeah. as creatives, we resist that. And I think for good reason. Um, but I think for a lot of folks in the world of advertising and marketing, you can you can go, you tell me you can give me a formula to deliver. And that just means put the logo up in the first second, have a compelling hook in the first three seconds, um, and that will deliver X, Y, Z results. It's, you know. Of course, I'm going to take that. It's it, yeah. it's easy, you know. And, and I think that's the other thing is that we don't look enough at human behavior before, like when every time there's a new platform or a new format, 
we, we're not looking at human behavior for similar formats that came in before and, and like really like looking at these things and being like, well, what is this similar to? And the example I always like to give is like when stories came around, we're treating it like this, this brand new thing. But when you think about the actual behavior, mm-hmm. just look at the pages in a magazine. Mm. So when those, that first came out, people were trying to like cram like shorter TV commercials in there instead of being like, oh, this is really a, be- a good place for like a motion print ad. Mm-hmm. Seconds, have everything up, have a really kind of quirky visual that's going to draw you in. And then like headlines already there in, in the brand logo. Mm-hmm. You're solving all those issues, but you're still going to be creative in a different way. And it's just like, why are, just because it's video doesn't mean it needs to look like TV video. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I, I do think um, there is that strong desire for having easy, repeatable ways of doing things in the business. And I think some of that honestly comes down to advertising has always, always been a business without a lot of certainty. You know, uh, it was, you know, I forget the person whose quote it was. I don't think it was Gossage, but it was somebody back in the day said, you know, I know advertising works 50% of the time. I just don't know which 50% or something yeah. like that. And it's, it's always kind of been that way. So when somebody comes along and goes, just do X, Y, and Z and repeat that endlessly, it, it sort of takes the risk out and it tells me I'm, I'm spending my money wisely, even though we're solving problems that aren't actually the real problems. Oh, that, that's the funny thing to me is because especially on LinkedIn, you'll see all these people with like, do these things to get bigger results on your LinkedIn posts. And it's just like, yeah. yeah, but if everyone is doing it, nothing stands out anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, who do well are the ones who have committed to, again, not doing the easy thing. So it's like, you know, if everyone is doing X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. what are you doing to make yourself different if you're just doing the same thing? Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see like when I, I, I always kind of roll my eyes when brands try to hop on different trends because it's like you're not you're not creating culture or you're not leading it if you're just trying to jump on a bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Many different bandwagons that just don't really care about brands like jumping on. Like mm-hmm. again, talking about ad people versus real people. The only people I know who remember uh do you, or we can dunk in the dark from Oreo mm-hmm. are ad people. <laughs> and like and again, this go again, this all it all ties back together because the whole big thing that came out of that was like, oh, we need to have a war room on the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And like like live and it's just like this is something that newspapers have been doing for years for election night, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And it was miserable then when I worked in newspapers, and it's gonna mm-hmm. be miserable now, and I'll be surprised if you keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, and like sure enough like same problems and you know if everyone's trying to do the live thing no one's winning it because no one's standing out it's all this noise yeah i get that and i think again it's like as much as i really did love the dunk in the dark thing i mean it was really nice on the spot creative but again it's like what problem is that actually solving for people you know and i think that's that takes me to something else that i know you've written about and, and this is, I'll try to connect the dots here, but you've written a bit about culture in, in ad agencies and how to create better culture. And um, I like the way you framed it. It was kind of culture, you know, cult in all caps versus culture. And, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your thinking there, but then if there's a way to bring it back to how can culture create space for us to be solving the real problems instead of these surface problems? Um, so I think the first thing, something I was thinking about recently was that you have these higher up people who trust people enough to hire them and then don't trust them enough to do the job. Mm. 
and like you know you 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 trust them enough that you don't believe that if they're working from home they'll actually do it which to me it says probably hired the wrong person if you're worried about that Mm -hmm. but at the same time is you have these same people who get very protective about the place and like they demand this uh loyalty to them and this you know like you have to trust everything i do but then when they can't deliver on it and you leave it's just like well why aren't you leaving you're they're just a problem and it's just like <laughs> no it's just like you're i don't know it, this again this dates back to when i was in newspapers where we were seeing tons of layoffs there was tons of consolidation mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. can't imagine how that sounds familiar <laughs> and um you had the people who were running the newspapers were the ones who made the same bad decisions that got them to the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. The people that understood social because we had grown up with it and who were new, we were never consulted on anything because like the mm-hmm. higher just fundamentally didn't trust us because we were youngins. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, I may not know how to run a newspaper, but I at least understand that if you're giving away, uh, you know, impressions for a fraction of a penny, and all of a sudden your print product that you were actually charging for is dried up, you can't all of a sudden charge people print rates for things you're charging a fraction of a penny for. That mm-hmm. just sounds like business to me, but what do I know? I'm a brand new, you know, young photojournalist. Right. Um, and it's the same thing in advertising. It was just like, you know, you talk about consolidating these agencies to the point where it's just like with WPP, like what's the point of having WPP if you're just going to have one big agency under it? So yeah. like, if you're trying to save money, get rid of WPP, turn the individual agencies back on their own so that they don't have mm-hmm. to anymore. Like, you know, does, does, is Martin Sorrell an, an important, like, I'm, I, I don't want to make, I don't want to get blacklisted from publicists <laughs> for talking about Martin Sorrell, but like, is he a necessary figure in the agency world when the only thing I really remember him for at this point is introducing Marcel and telling all the publicist network that they weren't going to be allowed to submit for award shows while still requiring that people have awards to get employed there. Mm-hmm. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, I think that's, unfortunately, I think that's a lot of what culture. Is not, w, is not a publicist. He's, he was WPP. He was WPP and now he's media monks and S3. Yeah, no, I get it. But I, I think the point is, is that, uh, at the time, I forget who the head of publicist was at the time, but I remember that. And I think what, it, what it all comes down to one is, Culture can often just feel like it doesn't make sense. That's what I think a lot of people on the ground feel is like, why are you doing that thing? Why do I have to do that thing? Whether it is the showing up into the office when the office is is an open plan where I can't get anything done, or whether it's you say I, I you don't trust me to do the work at home, but yet, like you said, you trusted me enough to hire me and pay me X thousands of dollars every year. Uh, am I not an adult in like, and can you not tell if I'm actually not doing the work? Yeah. Um, and whose whose fault is that? You know, if you're not doing the work, who who really takes responsibility? I think for a lot of people, like you know, we, I like to talk about sort of ideal cultures. But honestly, like if you could just shift to a culture where people walked in and go, "Wow, almost everything that we do here makes sense," that would be a win for so many people, right? And and I I like your point about not consulting younger people in the agency in the areas where actually they would probably be the most useful to consult with. And, and I think some of that is a fear of giving up power, which is understandable. We're human beings, but I can also think as a leader and somebody who's not that young, like one, I want to know things. 
And two, I can still say that as a leader, I'm taking ultimate responsibility for whatever I have responsibility for. Yeah. But I also value the fact that I've got a bunch of 20 something people in here who have life experience, media experience, whatever, that could be super relevant. And why wouldn't I ask you for it? And then I can layer on whatever sort of more broad universal wisdom I might have learned over time of like human truths and things like that. Yeah. And then we can pull together and come up with solutions. But I think I think cultures just don't encourage that. Um, and I think you you use the the term like top down versus bottom up culture in that that thing you wrote on LinkedIn. And um, a lot of cultures are top down, sort of that older school authoritarian. What would a a more bottom up culture look like? Transparency. Um, I can't mm. tell you how many times I've done all the work that the creative directors wanted us to do. It wasn't the way I would honestly do it, but you know, mm -hmm. we wanted a certain way we did it. They come out of the client meeting that we didn't get to be a part of raving about how great it went over. And then the next day we're starting from scratch. <laughs> and it's just like, I just don't trust you at that point because it's like, I already questioned your decision-making. I don't trust you that you're going to tell me how it actually went to client when all of a sudden we're having to start over anyway, for whatever reason that you're not explaining to us. Mm. It's like, you know, you can make a lot of money and be an authoritative leader with like a clear, you don't have to have the answer. You just have to know where you want to go. Mm hmm don't know where you want to go, you're never going to get there. Right. But if you're saying like, oh, like there's this other route that these, you know, these people who are like in their 20s who are not as risk averse have taken and they kind of successfully navigated it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to not talk to them just because I'm older and being paid more. Like, I want mm -hmm. to know. And so I think having leaders who are transparent, mm -hmm. you know, not every sense, like not everything they know needs to be shared. But mm -hmm. it's for you to be able to do your job well and that you can trust them in the decisions that they're making, those mm -hmm. are really long way more so than any amount of alcohol or free food. <laughs> like just to know that you're valued enough and trusted enough to like mm -hmm. be not even at the table, but be in the room mm -hmm. to understand that's happening. Cause then if you're so up in your head and you're only looking at something so way, and then like some juniors are like, Hey, I know you said this during the meeting, like they come up to you afterwards, but here's the reality or here's like where there's a logical flaw that maybe this might affect how you think about this. Mm -hmm. Imagine how many, like how the, how that junior is going to feel for being feeling like they, they have that access to the person making decisions, mm -hmm. but they're actually being listened to. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, and then having those leaders kind of having, I think a lot of the time is you get up to those levels and you don't want to have to defend yourself. You have, you earn that title. There you earned it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think, if you don't want to become a dinosaur in any industry, like mm -hmm. not any industry, you need to learn from the younger people because they're the ones who are coming up with the technology that might ultimately replace you. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is where the debate on AI is really interesting because I've been trying to really understand and work with it. Mm -hmm. It makes me faster as an art director. It makes me better as an art director. Mm -hmm. I know there's people who won't use it because they think it's going to replace them. Mm -hmm. Like, I can see how it can bring value to the job. And like, I think once a lot of the legal questions about it get worked out, it's going to revolutionize social because you finally have a tool that's fast enough to create great quality work at the speed that we need it for. Mm. Just think about how much time you got for a print ad back in the day versus how much time you get for a social ad where you're mm -hmm. having to make 10 to 20 of them a month. Right. But to have this tool that can do something that's very conceptual and weird that doesn't require 
you know, like if you're, if, you know, I don't want to put illustrative out of business. And this is where I think they can benefit from too, because if they can get an AI model trained on what they do, mm-hmm. they know how to work with the models to, with their style, they mm-hmm. can make those apps too. Yeah. Um, the people who kind of, sorry, I, my brain jumps around a lot. It's I, okay. I'm, I'm working tracking. on getting it, seeing if I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. But like Andy Warhol had something called the factory. He was not the only person making Andy Warhol work. He had a whole swarm of people mm-hmm. doing stuff under his brand name. Mm-hmm. And that's how he he built himself up that way. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. It's like to imagine you're having an entire creative studio at your fingertips that you can use to output lots of really high quality work. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's where the industry's going. And if you if you're if you swear like. I only want to work with a real photographer, a real or a real uh, illustrator. You're mm-hmm. gonna get less time because as budgets get smaller, you're not getting that stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like there are things that they're still better at that than AI. Yeah. Because you get to a certain point, AI is a black box, and if it doesn't understand your prompt or like understand the importance of something, mm-hmm. it's like yelling at a wall because it doesn't understand you. So right. like high quality illustrators and photographers are gonna be worth their weight in gold because you can in plain English, explain what it is that you need and they'll be able to address it immediately. Mm-hmm. For something like social, that's, again, throwaway content for 90%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how is that not going to be a helpful tool? Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, there's a few good things that, that I heard in what you said. One, I'll start with the AI thing. I think it's hard. It's hard. One, I think just the, the name artificial intelligence and all of the folklore around it is part of what terrifies people. And so it just puts you starting from a place of being scared instead of starting from a place of curiosity, which, you know, for, for a lot of what you said, I think curiosity is a thread that goes through and I'll try to tie that together. But with AI, I think you need to be curious about what it can do, curious about how it can help you help your clients, et cetera, and curious about how you can sort of grow with it and evolve what you bring to the table now that you're using this particular tool. I mean, honestly, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as as Photoshop and all these other tools were coming in, I'm sure that seemed crazy. Like, what? I can't oh. use my markers anymore. I you know, and it, it does change things, right? Suddenly you had to you had to show up with a real live comp in a meeting instead of being able to like take time and do a marker comp and do that. And there's good and bad there, but but I think to not embrace it. And also if you see challenges with it, like talk about that, you know, like uh, that's how this technology will get molded is the people who are working on it are the ones who are going to mold it. So if you choose not to work on it, you have zero influence on where it goes. But if you work on it and you get in, in groups and you're working with other people and you say, this doesn't serve us. Okay. Let's figure out what could serve us. And I think that's, that's really important. And then you come back to the, to the leadership uh, and culture thing where you were talking about transparency. Um, I think it's also, I come back to that word curiosity, right? I think as a leader, you need to retain that curiosity that got you fired up to be in this business, right? As a creative in the first place. And it was just, you wanted to know everything and anything you could to make the work better. And if you get to a place where you suddenly shut off all of the voices below you. Mm-hmm. Um, you have ceased to be curious at that point. Mm-hmm. And I can understand it again, the human nature of wanting to protect and feeling like you've earned your place of not having to fight and qu- be questioned anymore. But 
I think you need that curiosity to, um, to continue to grow. Um, and I don't, I think for anybody at any level, that's really important is the desire to continue to grow. And that's like you said, you don't want to be a dinosaur. You, you better focus on, on how you can grow as, as a leader, as a creative, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think one of the, I don't know the, the practicality of this may go out the window once I'm actually in a position to do this, but I think, <laughs> you know, like once I'm full-time somewhere as a CD at an agency, what I'd like to do is like have at least one person from my team and like I can ro- like rotating them in, but coming to whenever I have like a client meeting mm-hmm. where like the bigger creative team may not be there, just having one person so that they, A, they can start building relationships with the client. They mm-hmm. can see kind of behind the scenes a little bit. And they mm-hmm. can also report back to each other if what I'm saying is accurate or not. Because mm-hmm. um, they're going to have their opinion on it. Mm-hmm. They're just like, Again, it's just all about that transparency and making people feel like they're being valued enough to be like, oh, you trust me to come to the client meeting. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily feeling like you need to say anything. Like all the, mm-hmm. if it's the right opportunity, you could, and you're, you know, you're hopefully bringing people who kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. But just this idea that like you are a team, you're not doing this by yourself. And like having that person who can also like, again, maybe they're there to help take notes for you so mm-hmm. that you can have notice from a creative perspective, not just from whoever's the, the note taker in the room. Cause a lot of the time it ends up being the account person and they're listening for very different things and what the creative person's looking for. Mm-hmm. Now that's a really good point. And I think it's another area where I'm encouraged by sort of the generational shifts in thinking. Um, because I think if you talk to people sort of my age or even older who are in the business, this sort of notion of, of having slightly more junior people in the room is like, oh, that's just not how we do it. I want to keep the room yeah. tight. I want to like anybody who doesn't have a major role to play. I don't want them in the room. And okay, I, I get it. But what I hear from folks, kind of in the you know from millennial down through Gen Z and whatever comes after Gen Z, is a lot more of what you're talking about, which is much more. I like the word transparent because I do think it's like how do you how can I be involved. How can I have understanding so that I can contribute? I think there's there's no worse feeling for somebody who's more junior in a business to feel like I don't have the information I need to actually contribute. I'm just yeah. I'm just pushing stuff around and I'm solving things like you said with that uh, I think creative director before where you're just you're solving to something that you you may not agree with and worse you don't even understand why it's being done that way. So yeah. it, it sort of just, it, it just completely stifles who you are. And it, I think from a business perspective, what it's doing is taking, a, a, you know, potential that might be this wide from one person and just squeezing it down to this tiny little sliver, which, you know, uh, you talk about agencies and the consolidations and all this stuff, you know, advertising has a lot of challenges in terms of its ability to make money and make profit. Um, I would argue that one of the reasons it's not doing so well is it's it's taking almost every person they bring into this situation and squeezing them into this tiny little box that basically gives you like 5% of what they're capable of. Yeah. And that's because you're not being transparent, you're not giving people the tools they need, the information they need to solve the real problems or better yet to identify problems that we're not seeing if you're up higher in the leadership and you don't have that insight, you get a more junior person to go, look at that, you know? 
and, and it, it goes back to you know so, like understanding what's actually happening to solve clients' problems. Like the same thing goes for the agency. It's like if someone doesn't understand how the agency runs, mm-hmm. you really expect them to help solve the problem. And if you're kind of consolidating the wagons so that only a few people know what the actual problems are, mm-hmm. everyone is left in the dark because it's like I heard there's gonna be a lot of loss, but I don't know. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's like. How many times have you heard agencies being like, oh, we're pitching crazy right now because rumor is, is if we don't win one of them, we're going to have layoffs. And it's just like mm-hmm. a great way to work. Yeah. But at least when I was at, when I was at BBDO Atlanta, AT&T had moved their headquarters from Atlanta to LA. So they opened up BBDO. BBDO. Okay. So we knew that we were losing a sizable chunk of the company. Mm-hmm. And that was like, we, we just knew that there would be layoffs if we did not win business. Mm-hmm. There was almost a certain nicety about it because it was like we knew the date we needed to win business by, mm-hmm. so that we could kind of plan. It was like, well, I'm not going to buy this smoker for my porch for football mm-hmm. season if I could be laid off at the beginning of October. Yeah, yeah, I can I can wait on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I think the ability to really understand where you sit again, whether you're the most junior person or not. Um, you then kind of know what you're fighting for and why you're fighting for it. Whereas if you're blind to it and all you hear is if we don't win the next pitch, we're going to have to lay off. And you're then you're going to have your imagination going, well, what's going on? Who's pulling business back? What's going on? And it also starts to feel like psychological manipulation because it basically just feels like you've come up with a reason to keep me here 80 hours plus a week instead of actually like, telling me here's the business challenge we're facing here's what we need and then it's like oh well then i might be like i don't know if i want to do 80 hours but i'd be like i'm I'm game for a little extra roll up the sleeves work here because i see the challenge um and that that actually brings me to another thing you wrote about um which you wrote about mental health not too long ago and it's something again where i think younger generations are are bringing more focus to it um i think the idea of mental health in the workplace was basically not even a thing, you know, when I came into work, it was just like, you don't talk about that. If you've got a problem, you deal with it. And honestly, if you have a problem, better, better yet, just squash it down and, and, and toughen up. And now I think the mentality has changed. But can you talk a little bit about your perspective on, you know, the challenges with with mental health and particularly in the ad business and and how we might create better space for that? Yeah, I mean. It, it all starts with the, there's like the key fact that you have to agree on before any of this makes any sense is that mm-hmm. if you like your job, you're fundamentally going to work harder to keep it than if you're being motivated by fear. Yeah. Fear has, is, is, there's a fuse that you're going to hit a point where you just stop caring. Mm-hmm. You're going to do as little as possible to not get fired versus doing as much as you can to keep working your way up. Mm-hmm. You have to start with this idea that workers are valuable. You have to treat them well because they're going to be a great resources. Um, mm-hmm. High school, I remember there was an article that came out talking to the um, then president of Costco being like, he had been criticized by the president of Sam's Club because they paid their people less. And he's like, they're throwing away so much money by paying employees as much as they are. And then, you know, his response was basically like, we retain people. We don't have to retrain them. Uh Customers come in, they love our employees because they they know them, they've been there that long and they're happy to be there and treat mm-hmm. our customers better. 
we saved X amount of money in the long term versus X Y amount of money in the short term, and that's significantly mm-hmm. more of a value for us. And it's yep. just like when you you know you're running these agencies and you start seeing everyone as a commodity of like, oh well, we can lay people off because there will be more people that we can hire down the line for probably cheaper. Mm-hmm. And it's just like you're doing a disservice to your clients because institutional knowledge of your client is so important mm-hmm. just for like the relationships but like what ideas have been pitched why did they not like them or what things may or may not be like on the table that may not have come out yet like how mm-hmm. was the or, uh, my partner and i were laid off what <laughs> we, the partners who at the end of the day were the responsible for laying us off didn't know is that on our last shoot the clients had expressed to us how much they wanted us to pitch them proactive ideas because they had a lot of money to spend and they were really looking forward to some of the ideas that we kind of like very vaguely, you know, mm-hmm. that could have been way more money for the agency if they kept us around. But by cutting us, mm-hmm. they lost all those ideas, they lost those relationship with the clients and they lost that piece of insight to the fact of what the client was going to try to do with their money. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you didn't ask. Therefore, yeah. like you put yourself in a situation where, you know, client and we we weren't even the piece of business that got lost so it was like for the clients just like we're the we're the biggest piece of uh business here mm-hmm. why are you letting go our team yeah it doesn't make sense and i think that short-term thinking i think again if you talk to sort of the industry-wide challenges in terms of being able to make money uh continue to make decent profits i think it comes back to a lot of that i think the sort of downward spiral of constantly being um cost focused instead of thinking about ways to invest and grow what we do and find ways to do it better um you know i had a i had a guy on the podcast a few episodes back mike wolfson he runs a a, a shop called high wide and handsome handsome mm-hmm. uh, they're in la yeah they're in la and he has the, that perspective about retention he they have like a 95 percent retention rate with their employees like they whereas the average agency i think loses like a third of their employees every year yeah and all that institutional knowledge goes out the window um and and it it accumulates both in terms of the the business results you get but in terms of the way the culture then shows up because you are now in this place of fear because you have constantly uh challenged relationships because everybody is doing things without knowledge you know and so you're suggesting things that they're like you should have known that uh you're coming up with ideas and it's like well you guys showed me that a year ago it's like well not me you know and so it's pissing everybody off you know and and that comes back to the whole mental health thing where you then have people fearful because we're in this space of everybody's sort of on edge with each other because nobody really knows what anybody wants and nobody you know we're just guessing um and that fear as the motivator is creating additional stress and depression among people which then just magnifies you know the likelihood that i'm going to show up for work and and not be at my best and be more on edge and then cause more tension and it just fuels itself and how do you how do you create space so that when people are going through the stress and, and I and I see it and I hear it on LinkedIn all the time. People are super stressed right now. Um, how do you create an environment where mental health takes more of a priority? I well, first off, 
to kind of go back to what you're saying, I don't know any industry that's ever done better because they got into a battle of who can do it faster, cheaper. Mm-hmm. Never in the history of businesses had ever been a win combination. Yep. Um, so I, I think, again, it comes down to is like committing yourself to doing it the hard way versus trying to get the, like score those easy wins. Cause it's just, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately I, this, this is a broader issue than just, you know, advertising. This is capitalism. It's like, especially when you have shareholders, you're mm-hmm. expected to increase your uh, profit every year. Mm-hmm. It is easier to increase your margin by laying off people than it is to growing the business. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start getting these problems because if you're laying off people, it's preventing you from growing. Growing is what's going to help save you long term because you can only cut so deep mm-hmm. before you eliminate the last piece of machinery that's actually holding everything together. Yep. Because um, someone ultimately has to do the work. And mm-hmm. people in a room talking about the business of the agency aren't the ones actually doing the work of the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to basically commit to like, how are we going to grow our business in a sustainable way? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going to burn people out. That's not going to make our clients feel like they're not getting the service they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and like, I don't know if this is a solution, but I've always been a big fan of proactive ideas because a good proactive idea is solving a problem the client doesn't realize they have yet. Mm-hmm. And when you're bringing them for a problem they don't know that they have, you're setting the terms of the brief because mm-hmm. you identify the problem and, and they're like they're kind of like caught off guard. Like, Wait, you, you saw this as a thing? Mm-hmm. And if you do that right, you're bringing in more business because all of a sudden there's something that wasn't scoped that you're now making that's bringing in more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of places that just don't want to do anything that's not scoped for. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been lucky in that I've worked at enough places where we've sold through something that was an extra piece of business to make me believe that is more common than people want to admit if you're solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I genuinely believe that if they like and if the client likes an idea enough, they will find the money. Mm-hmm. They don't. If they're not willing to find the money, they just don't like the idea enough. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think that's true for the most part. I think there's there is a cultural component there, um, both on the agency side, which sort of says, "I want to encourage you to think that way," and. I want to give you, coming back to the word transparency, I want to give you enough transparency into the business challenges that our clients are facing so that that stuff's percolating for you. And then every once in a while, you're like, you know what, that thing, I think I have an idea here. And then you talk to your boss or whomever, and not only can you get excited about the idea, but you know that it's solving something that in the sort of higher level meetings, when the the CMO and the CCO and the head of strategy or whatever are huddling, this is what keeps showing up. That person keeps saying, man, or whatever, we just can't solve this one thing. I don't know what's going on there, but they've never thought of how to bring it into a marketing and advertising framework. And so when you do, you solve something. And then I think it's, it's how you set up your relationships with the client. And that might be a little bit of the financial side, but but more just an expectation side that we're going to show up with some ideas for you. And we're also going to do it in a way that clearly ladders back to the problems that you're talking about. Because I think what they might get frustrated by is like, oh, I have a really cool idea, 
but it's a really cool idea in the sort of moldy whopper vein, which is like, it's an ad that could win awards and you know it as soon as you see it. But as a business person, I go, I don't know what problem this is yeah. solving for me yeah, versus exactly. the, the problem it solving. Needs, it needs to be solving real problems. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It, you know, you just, you need that, you need that information for one, but you also need to be, you know, the, there's that other saying, it's like your brand isn't what you say it is, it's what other people say it is. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in agencies who kind of are scared to let the client know that certain things are happening, like mm -hmm. without naming the two different car makers, uh, I can give two different examples of how they were handled differently. Mm -hmm. of them found out that they had a large uh, contingent of buyers who were queer. Mm -hmm. And they started playing to that and creating campaigns specifically for that group to increase sales further. Mm -hmm. They found out their vehicle was, or knew their vehicle was predominantly bought by females, but refused to market it just to females because they were scared that men wouldn't buy it instead of mm -hmm. being really good to the men. Mm -hmm. You might know who I'm talking about, but mm -hmm. uh, those are two different ways of solving the problem. One's just putting your head in the sand and ignoring it and then fighting mm -hmm. against what's actually happening. And the other one is embracing it and increasing sales as a result. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think a, a lot of the times creatives do find those kind of things because like when they're looking for ideas, they might be doing a deep dive on Reddit and seeing what people mm -hmm. are actually saying about the brand. Mm -hmm. A good strategy should be doing this too, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the props to the strategist who would come in with that from the get-go and be like, hey, this thing's going on that we should probably have at least one idea towards. But mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough though, right? Because I think, yeah, there are great strategists who always have those nuggets and you are just, you want to hug them because you know I can already, I've already got the beginnings of an idea. As soon as I heard that nugget, my brain's going. But I also think you need to encourage it on both sides because there is the pre-phase of work where you're researching and your mindset is in a certain place. And then there is something about when, when the, the clock is now ticking and you're under the gun to deliver the actual idea, that is a very different mindset. And where your brain goes under that pressure is very different. And, and so you, you might come up with a completely different nugget. Um, that would have been really hard for that strategist to come up to because oh. their mindset's different. You know what I mean? I, I, I've always hated when people say like throw out your first idea because my first idea might be different than your first idea yeah it's like where the hell did that come from and i can't tell you how many times where i presented a large number of ideas but mm -hmm. my very first thought coming out of the brief was the one that the creative director really liked mm -hmm. it's kind of like well if i had thrown it out <laughs> yeah i mean it's like i get the, the notion behind it because it, it, it is the theory that you go to the easiest idea first but i think I, I, I think that might happen on occasion, but I also think, especially for, for folks like you who, who are geared towards a problem solving mindset and have built that muscle up a lot, um, that first idea is based on being able to look at a problem and connect a lot of dots really quickly, usually in a way that other people can't. And that may or may not be ultimately the best idea, but there's usually like, a lot of truth baked into that idea because it's almost happened without you thinking. It's just purely based on you 
building that machinery up in your brain over time through experience. And now this, this, this bit of information flows into it and spits it out. And, and, and better yet, I would say park that first idea. So you're not fall in love with it and only chase it, you know, kind of like a cop who may be chasing that first suspect, right? It's like, they may be the suspect. So keep an eye on them, but, but then dig and and do your normal process, but then come back to that idea and see how it feels. And yeah. see if it still feels as true or even more true. Maybe now that you've gone through all the research, it feels mm-hmm. even more true. And I think, again, you need, you want to create space for people to, to think like that. And I think for me, that is ultimately what you want from leaders, right? You want leaders to, to provide that, the kind of guidance that says, one, trust who you are as a creative. So meaning if I'm a creative who always has like really weird and interesting thoughts right out of the gate, and then I have to kind of stumble around a bit, and then I'll usually come up with a few more, trust your process. For other people, yeah. the first idea might usually suck. It might just be like the most yeah. simple little mashup. Um, trust that too. But like I think you need, and this comes back a little bit to what you were talking about, a bottom-up culture in that thing you wrote. It really comes about recognizing the individual strengths that different people bring to the table instead of trying to homogenize everything under yeah. kind of one way of doing things. Do you, do you have any more thoughts on that, maybe you know, yeah. based on some of the things you were writing? Yeah, I mean, we don't live in a world anymore where it's like my way or the highway. It's just that, like, it was leading by fear was kind of the way that it used to be. Whereas, like, mm-hmm. I mean, what we saying before is like, I have the title, I have the power, you have to do it the way I want you to do it. Mm-hmm. And not, and usually is not the best way to motivate a large group of people because, well, a few people might be motivated that way. A lot of other people might not be, and it, you're not going to get your again. You're not going to get your best work out of the people who are not happy to be there. Or to be mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it it depends on what you're doing and who you're recruiting, and this is where recruiting matters a lot too. I, I was actually just watching something on Netflix today about a college football team. And how the coach's way of motivating people was just basically like, you're either a star or you're trash. Mm. And there was no in between. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there were people who like really embraced that because they wanted the challenge of rising. Mm-hmm. Those people are great because they're more often than not, those people are going to thrive no matter where they go. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, I say that about ad schools too. It's like, you have certain people, it doesn't matter if they're going to VCU or, you know, one of these like really small like boot camps. Yep they're going to be fine in the industry because like they just have the grit to like make it work. Mm-hmm. But then you have other people who like may need more time to develop. And, you know, if you're doing these like six month programs, like you need time to fail as a creative, most creatives need time to fail. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting that time to find out what doesn't work, you can't really discover what does work or understand why it works. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're doing this approach of like, well, we think anyone can, become a you know a great ad person in this short amount of time and then it's kind of like when the person's not developing well it doesn't mean that they don't have the talent to because i know i know someone who struggled through ad school and now they're like one of the a a plus list shops mm-hmm. and like they just needed time to develop yeah some of the other people it, but like you don't get that if you're just like you know looking at them from this like very early premature space it was like this quote's been like wrongly attributed to um Albert Einstein is like, you'll, you'll affect, like, you'll never be a genius if you're expecting a fish to climb a tree or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some people, it's something along those lines. I, I get it though. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, you, everyone, like, 
you have to figure out what people's talents are and then set mm-hmm. them up. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, yeah. That, no, go ahead. Yeah. It's just like, and if you're, if you're expecting everyone to come in with the same strengths and weaknesses and you're going to treat them as such, you're going to get a very mid-level team because all the averages are going to average out. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out how do I get the highs out of every single person. And that might, and this is where, again, it's like the harder way of doing it, but it will make your life better in the long run. Because if you're, if you know how to motivate your individual members and what they're all good at, you're kind of like a symphony conductor mm-hmm. being like, okay, I need you to come up right now and help on this. And like, I remember at Saatchi when we were, when we were there, mm-hmm. um, you remember Max? Mm-hmm. We were, we were both working on two projects under the same creative director, but uh, different projects. And there was something that he needed to have done that I was better at. And there was something I needed to do that he knew how to do that I didn't. Mm-hmm. So we just like switched. And yeah. so we on it to help each other out. And I remember the creative director walked by and I saw, I was like, and he, at first he was like really confused. And he was like, oh, hell yeah. And it's like, <laughs> that wasn't coming from him. That was like us figuring out that we both could kind of help each other in that situation. Mm-hmm. But I think the great creative directors, they know their team so well that mm-hmm. they can identify those opportunities to be like, hey, I know this isn't your project, but you help out on this thing and they're going to take over for this just for the time being. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's not a judgment on anyone's ability. It's just, right. let's get this done. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, Josh. I mean, first off, that last line, it's not a judgment. I think, unfortunately, we've spent a lot of time, particularly on the creative side, where everything does feel like a judgment. You know, I mean, it, it's kind of like it, it was more based around this cutthroat, like you can either make it as a creative or you can't culture rather than lots of people have different strengths that they can bring to the table as a creative and let's try to pull that out of each person and really understand it and find ways to bring it together so i agree that's something you need to do as a leader and i think about some of the things i do now working as a coach and it's like some of what 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 you do is you come into organizations and you help people really identify their strengths you know so you're basically providing some assistance to leaders to go okay what what is this person really good at? And and that can come from either just talking to them. There are some sort of tests you can take that start to identify how you think or that kind of thing. And all of that is super useful as a leader, but it also then needs to be sort of accepted that that you're you're a team now, more so than a collection of individuals or even a collection of art director writer teams, right? Because yeah. I think um, while I love the write, writer art director pairing, I think it's super helpful. Ultimately, if you've got ten people, twenty people in your team as a creative director, I, I don't. I think at, at its best, when I was working as a creative director, the beauty was that I knew I had all of these different talented people with different skills and different interests to kind of work together and shape things, and then some person could help out. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. And I think the flip side of that and the challenge that I see is the way we are sort of graded in the career hunt is portfolio. But the way we work now is not simply, I worked on this thing 100% and this partner worked on it 100%. It's much more integrated team stuff. And I don't know if you've thought about this at all, because I've started thinking about it and I can't quite crack it, but how do you, how do you account for that when you when you're trying to assess people and you, you simply just glance at their portfolio um you don't really know what kind of a team member they are how much support they may have provided on other projects how do we how do we get better 
at recognizing that reality? So I, what I do probably isn't the best thing because I think it undersells me a lot of the times in interviews, mm-hmm. but I'm always like making sure that I'm giving credit to like other people on the team for things and like mm-hmm. to, you know, like, like even with, uh, you know, like people will ask if I can design and objectively, like I'm a good designer, but I don't mm-hmm. think I'm as good of a graphic designer as someone who's been doing exclusively graphic design for 10 years. And that's my frame of reference. Right. There are like, I am, I am too aware of the brilliant graphic designers out there to say that, Oh, I'm like, I'm a great graphic designer because compared Mm -hmm. to them, I'm, I'm fine. Right. Um, yeah. But like to a recruiter or a creative director, that sounds like, Oh, he doesn't, he's like not a good designer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, I, and I've had that, like when, um, recruiters are looking through my book, they'll be like, I see you have a lot of people in the credits here. What exactly did you do? And I was like, well, I didn't only put the stuff in my book that I actually had a hand directly in. Mm-hmm. So like, you want to, you want me to walk you through every single project and explain every single part that I did to you. Yeah. Like, but you know, it's just like, if I'm the art director, there's an ACD and a CD and the CCO on it. Mm-hmm. Some of those people had less to do with it than I did because they were just approving things, mm-hmm. but I put in there for, you know, obvious reasons because they were yeah. and like mm-hmm. they may have influenced something at some point, but you know, it's a big jumbled mess. I, I think you look for people who are honest because I let me let me walk back a little bit. This is an industry first and foremost premeditated on sales. We're mm-hmm. selling to clients, we're selling to our bosses, and then we also have to sell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then we're selling to the consumer. Like every single part of advertising is sales from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And there are certain people who come into the industry who are very good at sales, but not necessarily doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times those people don't get filtered out because they are good at reading people and making that sale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, you could, you could argue that certain people in the industry have when when you get up to the top that way and you're not really good at evaluating and some people some of them are good at evaluating creative. I don't want to say all of them aren't, but mm-hmm. certain want people who they focus so much on just selling themselves. They don't know how to do the work. They don't know how to evaluate the work. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out very mediocre or very mm-hmm. average every other ad you see. Mm-hmm. You like wonder how that happened. And I was like, well, because someone wasn't doing their due diligence. For me, I find it really important that if I work at a place and I really enjoyed working with people and I think they'll give me a good review, mm-hmm. I ask them to get like recommend me on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and so they're kind of lending their name to vouch for their ability to work with me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like if I was hiring someone, I'd probably check to see if they had any and what people are saying, knowing that no one's going to write a bad recommendation on there. Yeah. Um, but I it's think, but it's the key words that come up, right? It's the yeah. what good things did they say about you? Yeah, and mm-hmm. a lot of the time you'll you'll see a lot of the same things because mm-hmm. people have those similar experiences. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't you don't just commit. This is the bad way of saying it. it's like you don't just commit one crime; you commit a lot of them. Um, yeah. But if, if you're a person of character and you do certain things the right way, people are going to notice it over mm-hmm. time and time again because you're constantly doing those things. It's just part of who you are. Exactly. And people at different agencies at different time periods have all noticed the same thing about you. Probably a good chance it's true because, like, you're not going to be able to fake it that long for that many people. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think more broadly, I do think the LinkedIn recommendations and just generally um, social commentary, like whether that's seeing how people relate on, on LinkedIn or whatever, and some of the comments they might make and seeing you can feel the energy that some people have together and the, the sort of genuine like like or love that people actually have for each other based on the way they're talking. I do think I will look at LinkedIn recommendations because like you said, I, I think you can get a broader story of like, what are, what are those quote unquote soft skills that somebody's bringing to the table in terms of how they work, how they support their teammates? Um, are they purely a good self salesperson? Um, and, and I think like the more you can think more broadly like that, when you're hiring somebody, the more likely you're going to get that well-rounded team. And then I think culturally you need, we need to start to, to sort of weed out this idea that it's just like one person is responsible for every piece of the ad. It, it, there is a team effort and you need the different parts of the team to pull that together. And you need, it's harder. This comes back to that. It's not as easy as just going, oh, I like this work. I'm going to hire that person versus I like the way they think. I like how it seems like there's somebody who's really supportive of the more junior team members. I need somebody like that. Or yeah. this is somebody who seems like they're really good at, at managing up. Um, and that's a hard task sometimes. So I want to do that. Or somebody who seems to really have a knack with clients. Um, all of those things really matter. Um, and it's not simply the book. I mean, for me, when I look at a site, I look at the book, but I even look at like the way you might describe your work. I read your about section. I look at a little bit of, to come back to your uh, sideshow thing, which I want to touch on real briefly, but like the side projects that you might choose to do, because it tells me about you and who you are and how you're going to bring something different and distinct to the table. Um, and I think that needs to start at the recruiting stage. And we need to get really much better at not just like who has the objectively best book, but what kind of person do we need to fill this role right now, given the mix of other folks we have on the team? Mm -hmm. And I don't think we do that very well. Um, I did want to just give you a moment to just touch on, you mentioned the sideshow, just so people have some clarity. What, what is the sideshow and, and why should people care about it? Uh, the sideshow was a uh, award show focused on the side projects of people in the design and advertising communities. Mm -hmm. And it ran two years under the old format, which was just like one show of a can. It was a, a mm -hmm. once a year show. We had a number of judges who had done one show in Canada and came over to do our thing too. Mm -hmm. um, so we, were, we were trying to be that same tier for side projects because uh, there was really, there's really nothing else out there where the award show is built for the creatives. They're all built for the agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, all you have to do is look at the price of submission for one entry and you, you get that right away. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we did was we were like, okay, at the time it'll be $10 per entry. Mm -hmm. and the, the bar to entry, the barrier to entry is super low. Projects that show off their own, like their actual creativity when they're going to be the creative director on their own project. Mm -hmm. We, after about a two year absence, we uh, came back, we relaunched under a new format that's more kind of like ads of the world and that's a gallery. Mm -hmm. No cash prizes, but no entry fees. That's really mm -hmm. just come um, and hopefully get inspired and let more people see the work you do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have all of our kind of award winners from the first two years that are already up there. Some people have already started submitting other things. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but yeah, it's like, it's great because we even, you know, we had our own version of the Google I'm feeling lucky button where if you click it, you'll just get served a random project that someone made. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. So it's just like, we want people to just kind of dive in and see the different things that people are making and go off and make their own stuff. Because like, if you, I and mean, that's one of the keys to longevity in advertising is to not search for creative fulfillment through your day-to-day work, mm-hmm. do something else on the side that'll let you do the thing that's really creative. and then use the skills that you've curated making those things to make mm-hmm. yourself a day job. And that's yeah. something that I've really tried to do is like, if there's a certain skill, like I need to learn baseline motion graphics. I give myself a few projects where I'm just like doing motion graphics in my free time to try to kind of understand the tools better. And mm-hmm. you know, I finished a freelance gig where it, it required that. And so that was helpful to be able to go and be like, oh yeah, I can animate that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I again, I'm not gonna be competitive with someone who's doing motion graphics for 10 years, but right. If you need very well, you've got it in your toolkit now. Yeah. Well, I love I love that. And I, I don't know if you have that kind of insight on the sideshow site or not, but I think there's there's a really good lesson in there that that not only does it give it a chance, you a chance to find sort of complete and pure creative fulfillment when you do your own projects, and then what you're doing is providing a way for people to get some recognition for that. Cause I do think we have that innate need when we do any kind of creation to feel some of that feedback. Um, but the idea of using your side projects as a way to explore skills and, and, and styles that you might be interested in or particular areas, um, that's really smart, just career advice. It's not just, Hey, I'm doing this for fun to fulfill myself, but it's also like, Here's another way I can get better. I may not get this training in an ad agency, but there's lots of tools out there where I can go learn motion graphics or whatever, or how to host a podcast or whatever the heck it is. And like, suddenly you've done that thing. Mm-hmm. And now you can raise your hand when somebody wants that in the agency. Yeah. So I love that as, as not only a fulfillment tool, but as a career development tool. Yeah. And not that you ever really get helpful feedback when you don't get a job anymore, but when they used to tell you like, what thing you were lacking mm-hmm. uh, that always used to be my challenge is like well if i have time like i have a new side project i want to do how can i show that i actually can do that thing because i don't like i don't agree with their decision so i don't want to mm-hmm. give the next person the opportunity to say that same thing yeah because like, like i remember again it was like back in 2016 or something where i was told like oh they didn't think you were a good enough designer and i was just like i was working on a a, a brand where it was a photo of a car and Helvetica typeface. There wasn't really a lot of room for exactly. great design. So it's just like, yep. that's not, that's not on me, but I need, I need something to show that I can still design because I'm not mm-hmm. doing day work. Yeah, no, that's really smart. Um, I know we were already, you know, going a little longer than we might've talked about on this show, but I think it's been really fun. I want to, I want to ask a few more questions though. Yeah. One, um, you know, I talk about obviously desuckifying work and I think about the ad industry in general. Is there any person or agency that you're paying attention to right now who seems to be sort of setting the standard in terms of, of a of a desuckified workplace or a way of looking at the world that you're like, wow, they seem to be on to something over there? Um, I'm sure they're out there, mm-hmm. but freelance especially remote, you're not getting a very good insight into a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can tell the shops that are chaos yeah. and why they're probably not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like 
the way, the way I've always kind of tried to explain it to people, or like to juniors at least, is like every shop is going to have its issues. It's which ones are you willing to put up with, and how much money are they willing to give you to put up with them? Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, if you're if you're making over six figures, your your priorities are going to be a lot different than, or what you're willing to put up with is going to be a lot different than if you're just like a junior making like nothing, mm-hmm. uh, or even you know going up to like. The two hundred thousands versus the one hundred thousand, like you're gonna yeah. feel a lot more. Um, yeah, I get that. Yeah, and I, I don't, I, I can't single out any specific agency just because, like, I've been so doing the freelance thing for the last five years, and like mm-hmm. the the last shop I worked at full time was doing really well with that mm-hmm. until all of a sudden things were weird, and then they had massive layoffs. And yeah. Apparently, it was all, it was all smoke and mirrors, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, at the time it seemed like they were doing the right things and it was at, at the time it was the best job that I'd ever had. And then, mm-hmm. was- yeah. And that, that's, that's frustrating because that does happen in this business sometimes. And that can be outside factors. It can be, they hire one person who just kind of becomes poison, um, to the culture. I will say for me from observation, I'm not going to name any names, but I feel like there are some, some independent shops that at least feel like. Oh, you're trying something interesting there. You know, I, I'd like to talk to the people who work there to know if it feels like it sounds through sort of the PR lens of LinkedIn posts and all that stuff. But I, but I do think there is uh, this industry will will always be better when there are lots of good young independent shops who are giving us alternatives to to what the holding companies provide. And I'm not even going to make a blanket statement about holding companies, other than to say they're going to be good at certain things. Yeah, and they're not going to be able to be good at other things, you know. Yeah, and, and it goes back to what I was saying about consolidation in the newspaper industry. It's it's the same. Where whenever the whole the like Gannett came in and bought up mm-hmm. all these local papers, it never once made the paper better. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you could probably draw a similar parallel to ad agencies and the holding companies, where mm-hmm. an agency that was on a tear before they were part of a holding company continued to do better once they were on that roster versus like starting to flame out mm-hmm. um, there's i can point you to several instances they flamed where out where, yeah. they, where they flamed out or even yeah. this anymore yeah i mean it's tough right your incentives are different in that structure in in a very rigid corporate structure with with very aggressive share, shareholders so i get it and i think that's why i'm always going to just champion the independents who um they may have to turn over at times because some people are going to sell out and get their payday and all that. But I hope we continue to have a good culture of that. Um, and I, I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with people selling their agency. Yeah. To make what I have a problem with is what they should be doing is they should be giving profit sharing to the employees so that when they sell out, the employees are benefiting as well. Absolutely. And I think some do, but a, a lot probably don't. Yeah. yeah you know, well, it, there's nothing worse than like, finding out the founder made like $60 million and you're just kind of like, all of a sudden you're getting slashed, your job is getting slashed just because they got bought by a holding company and are looking for efficiencies. Oh yeah, no, that's, that, that is not, uh, not ideal. And I think it would be, it would be wonderful to see some independent shops not only do that, but, but be very clear that that's the plan from the get go. Meaning if, and when we get bought, this is a place where that, that reward is going to be shared fairly evenly amongst mm-hmm. everybody because we value all of you just because that the yeah. cultural shift 
Right. I'd work that much harder. I mean, not it doesn't take a lot to get me to work hard, but like yeah. to know that if like we go on a tear with pitches and mm-hmm. like, like I'm actually gonna get some bonus out of it in the long yeah. run if we do all like hell yeah, that that's the motivation for me to like really put up with a lot of stuff where I'd be like, Cool, I'm happy for you. Yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Again, it's just, it's sort of fundamental understanding of our human nature to to think that way, right? It's like, of course I'm gonna be more motivated if if I'm gonna share in whatever rewards come from that. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that people probably always talk about when you tell them that you work in advertising, but I don't care. I'm gonna I just ask you because I'm genuinely curious. Um, what's your favorite Mad Men character? Um I really like Stan, oddly enough. Nice. Because he mostly he mostly stayed out of the drama. Yeah. Uh, and he was just like he was more concerned about doing the work. Um mm-hmm. you know, like he didn't really get into arguments with Don. He was just kind of like, yep, okay. Um, mm-hmm. let me go do that. Um yeah. whereas like, you know, uh what was his name? Um what, what was the other guy who went crazy? I I know who you're talking about, but I cannot think of his name, but I know who you're talking you about. Know, yeah. like he, he was like driven out of spite with like mm-hmm. Don and not that Don was like a great boss all the time, but it's just like, I feel like Stan <laughs> knew when to pick his fights and for mm-hmm. the most part, he ever did bring up yeah. the object was kind of like justified. And otherwise he was just like, I just want to do a good job. And- yeah. I love that. I feel like you don't get Stan as that answer very much. I think Peggy is often the most popular answer because mm-hmm. she's, you know, sort of, she's both super smart and talented, but she, she challenged Don and, and, and many people would say she, if you had to pick one hero from that show, you might choose Peggy over Don. You know, I, I, it's funny because I I always choose Don, and it sounds like the easy answer, but the complexity of him and and what John Hamm brought to that character—somebody who did some genuinely horrific things and still somehow came across at sympathetic at many times. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There's something magical about that. In the same way, Tony Soprano, you know, these sort of anti-hero characters, I'm, I'm very drawn to, but. Um, I also want to ask you, like, how are you, like, we've talked a lot about the state of the business and, and even things we think could make it better. Are you optimistic about the state of, of the world of advertising or even just work in general? Or where do you stand on the optimism, pessimism scale? I'm on the fence. Uh, yeah. If I had a better answer for my long-term career that wasn't in advertising, hmm I would consider go doing it, but I don't know what that would be. So for mm-hmm. the time being, I'm kind of just like continuing to do what I do and look out. Like, you know, there are several, like to your point, several newish indie shops that I'm watching. I think long term, if the industry does find a way to be sustainable, what I would love is to go in at like a at a startup agency with like an established creative who I really trust, mm-hmm. just like become their right hand person. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if they're not based in LA, in like five, ten years, help them open up an LA office, mm-hmm. like, get, get, kind of help run that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that'd be my dream because I yeah. like going back to like the enjoying systematic thinking. I love the challenge of building an agency, but I have no idea. I know that I don't know everything, and so whenever mm-hmm. people ask me, like, "Do you want to start an agency?" I'm like, "Do you know what it, you need to do to start an agency?" <laughs> I I sure as hell don't, and like yeah. what I've seen, I don't think I can do. Yeah, uh, I'd rather work with someone who, you know, they they're connected to clients that they can bring on. I can mm-hmm. like, with them and watch how they do those things, so I can learn it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
still learn to be a better creative because I trust their creative instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'm really looking for. I've, I've generally found that, like, I respond really well to creative leaders who I just like, trust, you know, shocking. Um, but it's a very noticeable difference where it's like, I have a hard time just kind of like biting my tongue. If I think someone's making bad decisions and like, mm-hmm. I, like, I don't, I don't want to come off as like egotistical, but it's just like, you look back at these places where I either didn't get jobs, but I wasn't excited about interviewing for to begin with. And it's just because of the job or places <laughs> where, you know, like I worked there and I didn't really vibe with the creative directors and like for them to not have accomplished much even to this point, it's kind of like, I don't feel as bad about it mm-hmm. because like I look at these other places that I admire and be like, I remember one of my, my very first job, um, I was told by the creative director that the type of work they were doing is just what advertising was after I'd come from a shop that was very interning that was highly creative and doing it very well. Mm-hmm. That's how I kind of knew that I wasn't a good fit there because it was just like, you're telling me to not believe my own eyes with what I just saw from this other place. All right. You know, so it's just like, things happen you you move on and hope that you can get to those places where you're working with people that you can like feel very comfortable you know dedicating yourself to because that's what they're you know we were talking about before like they they ask so much of you and oftentimes a lot of these leaders don't deliver on it like Mm -hmm. i remember being at an all creative meeting where the creative department was getting blamed for not winning enough awards and it was just like how come you're not selling the ideas through because I've seen plenty of ideas get presented that could win awards. And in mm-hmm. fact, turned it down. And then some other agency did it and won an award. Yeah. yeah. Like, how am I supposed to work for you when, like, that's what we're up against? Mm-hmm. Yeah, God, I think, yeah, I, unfortunately, you see a, a little too much of that in the business. And I think um, that word trust keeps showing up. I do think that is the key. You need to trust that the leadership has your back. And that the leadership is willing to be humble enough to occasionally trust that you're onto something um, and at least give it a shot. You know, uh, even if if your first instinct is like, oh, I don't like that or I don't understand that, give yourself a chance and trust that the person might be onto something. Um, I think that's really critical. And it it brings me to the question that I also ask a lot of people, which is it sounds like trust might be a big part of it, but if there was a sort of fully desuckified work world in the ad business anywhere what does that look like what what does it take to make it not suck uh i think you start with getting rid of open offices which are universally hated (laughs) and i i I literally think you can draw a line between the introduction and proliferation of open offices Mm -hmm. and people wanting to work from home Mm -hmm. it's like again i remember i went to i was at an agency where they went from having kind of semi-closed areas to work to completely open and when Uh people complained about it or really the cco complained that people weren't being energetic enough because they would sit at their desk with headphones on Uh the suggestion was that if you need a more private place to work to go to a coffee shop and it's like why am i driving all the way down to this office (laughs) just to then leave to go to a coffee shop and not work at the office it makes sense Uh but like if I had a private place I could go to to actually get work done at the place I'm supposed to be doing work, I'd be more inclined to want to go into the building because then I can step out, have those hallway conversations that they always talk about having, mm-hmm. but then I need to actually sit down and do the work. I don't have a million distractions getting in my way. Yeah. And that's yeah. what people love about 
their home office is that they can actually get work done. Yeah, I can, I can shut my door and I don't have to put headphones on. And yeah, I, I agree with you there. I, I never liked the open office. I remember when I've had offices or even shared offices with my, my art director partner or something. And it's just like, it's night and day. Um, yeah. Like you, you can get so much more work done. And yeah, though that social component happened organically because you knew where you could go hang out in certain common areas, whether it was for lunch or just to hang out and get and get a coffee and just sit yeah. and all that stuff still happened. Yeah. But, but good God, I, I, you sit in a hundred person room and you're telling me to keep my headphones off, yeah. but I have to design or write copy. It's impossible. Yeah. You know, and then on top of that though, it goes back to the trust issue. Cause it's like, if I had a, if I had a CCO say like, Look, I know y'all hate open offices, but they save us this much money, which means that we don't have to have layoffs this year. Right. I'd be like, yeah, cool. Thanks for explaining that. I at least respect you for being honest. Yeah, I know. Like, Instead of the 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 story that everybody had to tell, which was that it's amazing for collaboration and you can just poke the person across the way, which once in a blue moon maybe happens. But yeah. I think I even wrote this in a comment yesterday, like 90% of the collisions that happen in office are interruptions. Yeah, plain and simple. There are things you would be better off without. And then there are those few sparked conversations. And why not, if it is an open office, design it in a way where people can find the privacy and the seclusion they need when they need it, but then encourage certain spaces, you know? There's, there's nothing worse for getting and staying into a flow state where you're going to be at your maximum productivity than having people just constantly like, making noise yeah it's the worst yeah it is i get it and I, I do think it influences the work from home i mean i'm a big work from home guy i know i think i've seen you write that you generally prefer working in the office but it needs to be an office you yeah. know uh, not open and i i think i just think regardless of where you stand on the the remote versus office thing the people who want people to work in the office should spend a lot more time thinking about the experience in the office and make it as good for people as possible. And then a lot of people are just going to show up. Yeah. You know? I, mean, I don't know if you saw last week, tonight, the other week, but they were doing this whole thing on McKinsey and, um, you know, these consultancy agencies. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the same thing. It's just like going back to the, you know, the cost saving for why are they doing Like, why are they actually doing open offices? Mm -hmm. they can, they can hide under this guise of this other thing that people have been saying forever that can't actually back up because are you going to call the CCO out in front of the creative department about this? Like right. you put your job on the line of someone who isn't a team player when the reality is you're probably speaking whatever. Like I, I think I wrote about this the other day and it was that cold versus culture thing. It's just like, mm -hmm. if you talk to the individual people in a department about what their problems were, I bet you nine out of 10 times, you're going to get the same answers, mm -hmm. but no one wants to be the person that brings it up because they don't want to be seen as the problem person. Of course. Yeah. And that's the problem. And that's where you have these toxic cultures mm -hmm. where people, if people are constantly living in fear to complain about the things that are actually like getting in the way of them doing the work, it's mm -hmm. just not the environment that's going to foster the type of work that these people who are instituting them think that they're going to be getting. I agree. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, when I hear that, that's something I would quickly want to wave the magic wand on, like find a way to encourage and honestly reward and support 
honest feedback from the people who work for your organization, because the only way you get better is if you know the truth. But I think mm -hmm. we all just walk around with freaking blinders on and, and just pretend like we're solving real problems when we're actually solving made up problems. I, I, I've batted the idea around so many times of just like starting an offering where like an agency can hire me. I'll come in, interview a ton of their employees anonymously. Like, you know, I'll talk to them and I'm not going to record any of their names, just employee one, two, three, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then like make a report of what I found. Like, here are the things that your employees are thinking that they don't want to tell you. Mm -hmm. Here's how you could solve them. Mm -hmm. And here's what you could expect to gain from it. But like, I, I, I think that there's two things going against it. One, it requires a self-realization that I don't think a lot of agencies want to have about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like the place I've worked where they do not do timesheets has abused us more than anywhere else. Because and my, my rationale is that they don't want to know your hours because they don't want to see how much you're going over 40 hours a week because they can feel better if they pretend they don't know. Yeah. It's your choice. Yeah. Like when I got laid off from a place that had, um, you know, unlimited PTO, Mm -hmm. I was supposed to a vacation, a two week vacation, two weeks later, I had not taken a single day off to up until this point because I was on this big project. And their response was, well, you should have taken your PTO earlier. Cool. I'm glad I was helping you out with this giant piece of business, the biggest project in agency history. Right. Like I should have just left in the middle of it. Like that's what I yeah. should have done. God. Yeah. I, I think so many of these things to me, they feel like such low hanging fruit. They're such easy solves. But there's clearly sort of cultural inertia that keeps people from wanting to really know the truth, wanting to deal with what the consequences are of that truth. Even though I think if you really talk to people at the highest levels within any agency, they know on the, on the other side of all that work is something better, but all the disruption and all the questions they're going to have to answer about what are you doing stops them from doing it. So. I think, again, throw that into the magic wand of like, how can we get people to embrace the idea that a little bit of short-term pain and uncertainty can result in so much more long-term gain, uh, but you got to be willing to, to, to stand in it while it happens. Yeah. I, I think the easy way to sum that up too is to just businesses shouldn't just act like businesses. They should act more human because it's filled mm -hmm. with humans. Yeah. When when you get a group of people and you start saying, oh, we're doing this all in the name of the company, it's better for the company. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's just so disingenuous. And unless you hide behind making these bad decisions that are mm -hmm. because, oh, it's good for the company. When yeah. it's just like the person saying, like they could be let go the next day. Like mm -hmm. the, the person at the top doesn't want to make the cut. So they send you and then they cut you the next day. So that instead of having to cut 15 people, they're only cutting one person. Yeah, like that is that is a one hundred percent business thing to do, mm -hmm. and it's a terrible thing to have to do to someone. Yeah, I do agree. I think I think we 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 can hide behind the impersonal structure of a company or a corporation, and um, yeah, again, it seems so simple. Just be more human. Um, I, I'm trying to do my part. I know you're trying to do your part with how you're talking about stuff online, and I think we just want to keep sharing it. And just to, to end with a little bit of levity, um, one of the things I've been doing with with my show is injecting some sound effects to the intro and outro. And not surprisingly, since you know me and I know you're a cat guy, I do a lot of cat sound effects. And I'm just a lover of goofy, dumb sounds. Um, and I've been asking every guest if they're open to it to 
to try to make some sound effect that I can, that will show up somewhere in your, in your recording and may even show up later. Um, you have anything that you'd be willing to, to do for us? <laughs> uh, I can do an impression of, uh, my cat Killbot when he's hungry. Okay. <laughs> it's like seamlessly until I feed him. <laughs> One more time, clean. <laughs> I love that. I love the question mark that I hear at the end of it. You know. Yeah. Um, so the only last thing I want to ask, Josh, just if, if people want to pay attention to what you're putting out there, what's the easiest way to to follow you online? Um, LinkedIn for the most up to date stuff. I, I end up syndicating a lot of it on mm -hmm. um, on my personal website. I have a kind of a blog section, which okay. I, I just, it's like kind of a catch-all for the random things I make and I can just mm -hmm. drop them instead of making like a whole new project sometimes. Yep. Um, so that's another place, but I probably should update it a little bit more. But okay. If, what's your, uh, what's your web address? Joshdweiss.com, W-E-I-S-S. -S. Okay, cool. I mean, I'll put all this stuff in the, in the show notes, but um, well, Josh, I appreciate you, you coming on. I think, you have a really wonderful way of put, putting the pieces together of some of these more complex systematic problems. And I think not only does it show up in some of the work you do creatively, but, but in the stuff you've been posting more recently, um, I think people should definitely follow you because you're, you're at the very least you're sparking thought and conversation that needs to be had, uh, not just in the ad business, but I think in business in general. So thanks for coming on and, and talking about it. No problem. I appreciate it. Sometimes I feel like Cassandra, where just no one, I'm cursed to have no one ever listen to me. <laughs> even, even though I'm like saying the right thing that like is true, it's just like, no, like she's just cursed to never be believed. <laughs> I, I get that. Social media has a way of making you feel like you're, you're definitely shouting into a wall sometimes, but uh, just know that at least a few of us are, are paying attention and, and hopefully we can amplify that. I mean, more than anything, I'm just, I'm trying to think about what would have helped me when I first got thrown into the freelance market mm -hmm. involuntarily. And like, there was just nothing out there at the time that was like helpful. Like the go-to was just like, if you're, if you're looking for work, don't talk about it. Like be quiet, just pretend like you're busy. Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, but how am I supposed to let people know that I'm available if I don't have any like name recognition in this industry? And it's yeah. uh, just all the stuff that you go through is just like, it can be so isolating. I just want to be like, let me just put my experiences out there because I, I've had enough time to kind of look back at it and kind of draw conclusions from it that maybe it'll help someone else who's going through the same thing so that they don't feel just like desperate. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, well, I think that's a good lens for all of us. I mean, I think as anybody moves up in whatever business they're in to remember what you went through and to use that lens when you start thinking about ways to solve some of the challenges you see is really helpful because um you know it's the only way we learn and grow is to to get some some perspective from other folks who may have it so uh, again i appreciate what you're doing and uh i hope more and more people check out what you're doing and and i hope they uh they learn from you and i hope some of them are in a position to bring you on as freelance or full-time or whatever you want i appreciate it dj uh, thank you for having me hopefully um you keep growing your fan base with this. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for coming on. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Desuckify Work Podcast. And thanks to Josh for being an intelligent and insightful guest. 
You can follow Josh on LinkedIn. Check out his site at joshdweiss.com and be sure to check out thesideshow.org, a showcase that Josh and others created for some of the best side projects from ad industry folks around the world. Over here in my little world, I'd like to make my side project more of a front and center project. So if you like some of what you heard from me and would like to collaborate, get coaching, or make cat sounds together, let's talk. I'll drop a link in the show notes to help you get something scheduled. See you next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.